At the crossroads of exegesis, we find an intersection of language, history, and theology. I stand before you as someone who has walked these roads primarily as a historian, a theologian, and a grammarian, the one who has worked most of my life within cross-cultural, multi-language contexts. Over the past several years, I have increasingly been drawn to the explanatory power of linguistics. In my case, this arose from the need for better resources for engagement with biblical languages and exegesis in English, Portuguese, Spanish, German, and, and lately East African languages. The need was cemented by overseeing a failed four-year project of translating Daniel Wallace's Greek grammar beyond the basics into Portuguese, by the end of which we did translate the whole thing, I had realized that it simply was not sufficient to translate English-specific grammatical and semantic tools for the study of Greek and Hebrew into global languages of wider communication. And yet, this remains the predominant method. We produce resources, frequently commercial products, which are then exported into the global context for distribution with little thought to linguistic accuracy. And yet, we are called into a global mission for the resourcing of the Christian church you here at Southeastern Seminary are highly aware of this. Go, right? I hear it all the time here. Um, as such, I find myself reevaluating my own primarily English and German language programs in order to contribute to better global engagement with Greek and Hebrew. This has led to a turn, and in some ways, as we will see, a turn back to cross-linguistic, non-English reliant typological engagement with biblical text in the languages of wider communication in which the global church is now engaging. At the same time, however, this approach, this typological, diachronic approach, has proven difficult to defend in my own professional guild of biblical and theological studies. There is an inherent legacy of hesitancy to engage in such typologically driven, contextualized, cross-linguistic work, a legacy driven in no small part by the ongoing influence of James Barr. It is from this background then, when asked to give a paper on linguistics and, exe uh, linguistics and exegesis, I decided to engage this group on this specific question, how should the biblical and theological guild and its cousin, the Bible translation community, engage with the constantly evolving and highly productive field of linguistics for the broad purpose of accurately, engagement, of accurately engaging with the biblical text? I will answer this question diachronically, therefore, placing us within the history of research. When Dirk Gerhardt describes in his seminal work on lexical semantics a mental journey through the historical landscape of linguistic theory, there is within this landscape an unmentioned territory of biblical and theological studies, which is perhaps most notable for the deep canyons and fissures that run through its terrain. These canyons separate its population, the general population of biblical scholars, a smaller camp of biblical linguists, and the Bible translation community, with the entire territory almost entirely separated from the wild, wild, wider field of linguistics, secular linguistics. I grew up within the first camp, drawn historically and by long influence to the reflections of the biblical philologists, the dead grammarians, such as Robertson, Moulton, and the rest. And indeed, my guild continues to use such tools and resources developed within the area of the dead grammarians, our core lexicons, our grammars, and our syntaxes. On the other hand, it has become entirely unfashionable to engage in the linguistic conclusions of these older grammarians, especially since the 1960s, and James Barr's structuralist reprimand to the Biblical Studies Guild on their use or misuse of linguistics. 
However, with the exception of the occasional cautionary glance back to Barr about the dangers of cross-linguistic or typological analysis, this group, this guild, does not seem to have integrated formal linguistics into its studies. This is not to say that there are not isolated groups of scholars who have embraced certain schools of linguistics, perhaps most famously in North America anyway, is Stan Porter, building a circle of students within a particular systemic functional linguistic camp, has built a certain degree of internal cohesion. However, this group has remained relatively small in comparison with the wider field of biblical studies. This is all the more felt by the exception that proves the rule, notably the deep engagement with linguistic theory in the Bible translation world, a world fundamentally inclined towards cross-linguistic analysis, diachronic study, and so many of the things which Barr made so unfashionable in the Biblical Studies Guild. And yet the Bible Translation Guild has, for the most part, and until, until recently, been seemingly unwilling and uninterested in engaging with the Biblical Studies academic community, and vice versa, probably as a result of an increasingly mutually unintelligible vocabulary or theoretical frameworks that would enable the two communities to bridge this gap. And so as exegetes, we find ourselves in an odd situation, both dependent upon and yet alienated from our philological past, gun-shy due to the criticisms of the early modern linguists, but for the most part, unwilling or unable to engage with ongoing current research in linguistics and separated culturally and terminologically from my Bible translation cousins. What I will argue today is that this current synchronic situation of different camps within biblical exegesis is understandable in light of a diachronic history. We are not simply ontologically created as linguists or biblical translators or philologists. There is history behind this development. Unfortunately, without getting to Jordan Peterson on you, Historical development has resulted in current tribal identity, struggling for power, struggling for influence. Allow me to set up this historical examination in light of our historical past through a comparison with my own field of New Testament historical scholarship. For two centuries, the study of the New Testament was dominated by a cutting-edge historical reconstruction birthed in Tübingen by F.C. Bauer and his colleagues, this historical reconstruction of the New Testament, of the New Testament history, in which Paul and Peter represented conflicting camps, became the foundation for much of New Testament exegesis. In fact, it became almost impossible to do critical academic work in the New Testament field outside of this historical and philological expectations, philosophical expectations, excuse me, only when scholars such as Lightfoot, Schlatter, and Hengel had the wherewithal to move past purely exegetical work and rather to evaluate the historical and philosophical presuppositions that had formed much of modern German and indeed the liberal Protestant project, was New Testament studies able to engage in alternative readings of the New Testament. We found then that we as exegetes and theologians had to become historians, at very least willing to critique and engage outside of our narrow spheres of comfort, to recognize that there is indeed no such thing as simply reading a text without dragging along our readings with our readings, the historical, philosophical, theological, and indeed linguistic baggage that govern these readings. We have hopefully matured beyond a naive hope that unmitigated access to the text is possible or indeed even desirable. And so too, my friends, with linguistics and exegesis. There is then, embedded within the study of linguistics, questions of power, truth claims, exegetical honesty, and exegetical responsibility. Just as we could no longer afford to not do history, 
within our exegetical process. The question is quickly becoming whether exegetes can afford not to do linguistics. This is then not simply a question of access to new data. Exegetical engagement with linguistics also addresses questions of power, that is, who controls our theories and analysis. Accountability, that is, who holds us accountable for our own linguistic and exegetical decisions and responsibility. How well are we caring for those under our pedagogical or exegetical influence? All of these demand that we gain better access to the linguistic thought that influence our engagement with the biblical text and our own communication of that text. Indeed, linguistic systems are indeed making their way, slowly but surely, into exegetical method, commentaries, and discussions around exegetical disputes. However, one of the problems we are now seeing is a metastasizing of the external language wars that took place within secular linguistics, and we are in danger of spreading this within our own community. Much of this comes from the relatively isolated engagement of our field with linguistics, the idiosyncrasies that have risen within our small camps, and the inability to self-police and synthesize linguistic checks and balances. Take, for instance, a few unhappy examples. In Jan Nyland's recent review of Dave Matthewson's book on Revelation, we find Nyland's critique begging of the very linguistic questions that we, and indeed Matthewson, are investigating. Nyland responds to Matthewson's claims on markedness, quote, in the aspectual network, the perfective aorist is the least marked, whereas the imperfective, the present and imperfect, are most marked. The state of aspect, perfect and pluperfect, are the most heavily marked aspect. The aspects are markers of degrees of prominence in discourse, where the perfective is used for backgrounding, the imperfective is used for foreshadowing, foregrounding, and the stative is used for front ground, which means that the aorist is used for narrative. The imperfect is used for past context, the present for climactic points, and the perfect and pluperfect for what is highly prominent. For those with ears to hear, Nyland here follows his teacher, Dr. Porter's particular and somewhat idiosyncratic symmetrical approach to markedness. While this theory of prominence and markedness is worth exploring, there is simply no mention in this review of a separate book that this position is in the extreme minority position in the broader linguistic conversations on markedness. Rather, this review reads either as an intentional propaganda piece for the author's linguistic school or as someone unaware of other voices within broader linguistic schools. Seemingly only in biblical studies can we find a truth claim like this to be made in a peer-reviewed journal. Dr. Porter's school is in particular danger in this regard, which is understandable given his own singularly voluminous publishing record. For example, in a recent SBL presentation, Porter attempted to appeal to a Kuhnian shift that had taken place to support his own linguistic framework. And yet, in referencing the wrong-headed linguistic approach of typology, cognitive studies, and prototype theory, he simply begs the very question of his systemic functional linguistic hegemony within biblical linguistics. The danger here, both for the field and for our own foremost biblical linguists, such as Dr. Porter, is to believe that such a tribal hegemony is indeed actually in force. This does justice neither to the broader linguistic field nor to a school's own broad-ranging and creative work. This is not to say that novel theories are not to be welcomed. Scholars are supposed to probe such possibilities. 
and some of these will be unique, charting new waters. However, the lack of accountability and engagement with and from the broader linguistic community and its schools of thought, and the lack of meaningful linguistic engagement by the biblical studies field has led to increasing isolation between our communities rather than engagement and synthesis. This is a real shame. This is a real shame, for we need far more engagement with linguistics in and out of the biblical studies field. Accordingly, as I will argue below, it is the duty of the exegete to respond to such claims with sober engagement, to avoid both being led around by the proverbial linguistic nose, and conversely, to avoid ignoring serious theories of linguistic engagement. As it turns out, Dr. Theory's, uh, Dr. Porter's school attempts at creating a single universal formal theory of tense and aspect in the Greek verb are themselves situated within a school of theoretical linguistics. And when we understand this, it helps the Biblical Studies Guild to build a framework for engagement, not rejection. I am by no means immune to the flattening of such linguistic arguments. In a recent JETS article, in which I argue for an aspect prominent structure and nomenclature for the Greek verb, I casually threw in a solution for the origins of sigmatic markers for the perfective aspect, ignoring fairly significant conversations in the diachronic development of the sigma and with a typo to boot in that footnote. Whether our position was correct or incorrect, I've now seen this footnote statement cited numerous times in English and now in Portuguese and in Spanish, typo and all, as linguistic proof for the perfective aspect in the future in the heiress forms, layering bricks on a further strawy foundation. This is breaking one of my personal life goals, which is don't export stupidity. <clears throat> the problem is that our positions tend to be read with entirely too much canonical weight by fellow exegetes and biblical scholars. With each requote and each footnote, the butter on the exegetical toasts becomes spread ever thinner. The benefits, indeed the absolute necessity of exegetes re-engaging with the actual linguistic fields rather than our favorite linguistically informed biblical scholar is to bring these theories into the light of discussion and analysis for evaluation, sharpening, synthesis, and then dissemination and re-evaluation of knowledge. And so much as the turn to serious historical study Provides a well needed, provided a well-needed corrective to the Tubigan School's cutting-edge historical reconstructions, so also a turn to serious linguistic study has the power to provide an antidote to the chaos of our own general linguistic ignorance and also to guard us from the sectarian tendencies of those wielding, whether unintentionally or intentionally, the trappings of linguistic power. I believe, or at least dare to hope, that the true Kuhnian shift taking place it is a re-engagement with modern linguistics and that no longer can isolated tribes in our valleys and coves claim a monopoly on our exegetical frameworks. With such questions of power, history, and exegetical responsibility in mind, how did we get to this place where most of our Greek and Hebrew scholars have generally disengaged with the linguistic conversation? There's history here. And by revisiting it, we may briefly find an opportunity to engage questions of why we, as an exegetical field, have in general abandoned the field of play, what this failure means for our exegesis, and how we might reverse this trend. 
earlier in this conference, Dr. Porter provided an excellent high-level review of linguistic schools. So for this exercise, let us take the field of lexical semantics as a point of comparative diachronic examination. This section is not intended to be comprehensive, but rather heuristic. And I find here the work of Dick Garrett's to be particularly helpful in tracing these historical influences. First of all, the philologists. Historical philological semantics dominated the scene for much of the 19th century. While the study of linguistic semantics was, of course, taking place before 1830, it's at this time that research into word meaning came into its own. Here we find representative scholars such as Michel Priel, Hermann Paul, and Gustav Stern. In biblical linguistics, the early giants of the field can be positioned here, including the works of scholars such as A.T. Robertson and James Hope Moulton for Greek, Wilhelm Genesius and Samuel Driver for Hebrew, who produced some of the cutting-edge language research of the day and continue to be in use today. The theological dictionaries such as that by Kittle likewise emerged from this period. All of these scholars were interested in deeply psychological, socially contextualized reading of words. At the methodological level, this type of semantic research and interest may be characterized by the following three features. First, the orientation is a diachronic one. Interested in changes of meaning manifested across different cultures, contexts, and time periods. In other words, semantic meaning was considered as deeply contextualized. Second, change in meaning is, most, is mostly narrowed down to changes in individual words. And thirdly, the dominant conception of meaning is psychological, resulting from psychological processes. In terms of legacy within the Biblical Studies Guild, the historical philosophical, uh, philological scholars were very much in sync and indeed were leaders within broader linguistics. The quality of their work was such that it continues to provide us with a legacy of resources. However, as the wider linguistic field migrated away from comparative philology and toward structuralism, the biblical studies community, inherently conservative in its exegetical decisions, found it difficult to commit to this migration. And so we enter the modern phase, especially structuralism. The origin of formal structuralist semantics may be attributed to Jus Trier and to Leo Weisgeber, taking theological inspiration, a theoretical inspiration from the work of, of course, de Saussure. Weisgeber criticized historical philological semantics, specifically arguing that the study of meaning should be synchronic instead of diachronic, and that because the meaning of a linguistic sign is determined by its position in the linguistic structures of which it's part, linguistic semantics should deal with these structures directly. The structuralist experiment was therefore an attempt to develop a synchronic, non-psychologically, structurally focused theory of semantics. We can see here three important distinctions from the earlier philologist. First, a shift from diachronic study to the study of a language synchronic structure. Second, a focus on the abstract language structure as opposed to linguistic behavior or performance. And a focus on the signifier versus the signified. Likewise, the focus begin to shift from the comparison between languages. As Gerhardt summarized, the structuralism was at its core a shift toward a decontextualization, attempting to strip away the psychological, diachronic, and performance properties of the language. In the biblical studies world, this decontextualizing impulse was driven by the perceived misuses of the philologists. For example, overly theological and arbitrary readings of terms, etymological fallacies, and the unaccountable tendencies to recast semantic meaning into the image of the scholar. And in response, it reflected this decontextualizing impulse, reflected the prevailing linguistic winds of the day. 
Attempting to participate in this linguistic migration, James Barr's seminal structuralist work, Comparative Philology, had an irreversible impact and continues to this day to be considered in biblical studies a seminal and I would say even governing work. Barr's view is consonant with the contemporary move within the field of linguistics as a whole to a structuralist linguistic framework. In fact, comparative philology as a discipline fell almost entirely out of vogue in research on the biblical languages, at least in scholarly works. Scholars such as Moises Silva took up Barr's mantle, helping to integrate his concerns into the collective conscience of the field. However, the vast majority of the core tools remained philological in their orientation. There simply wasn't enough critical mass to uproot an entire exegetical community. Indeed, as structuralism began to wane, there was a sort of collective, see, we told you so, by this community, which only further entrenched our conservatism. Nevertheless, the structuralist approach in secular linguistics has an ongoing legacy within generative grammar, functional linguistics, and even cognitive linguistics. In biblical studies, Barr's legacy has both made unfashionable the faulty, overwrought etymologies, but has also embedded a compulsive reaction against cross-linguistic typological studies, that is, the ability to learn from comparison with other languages. In the process, we may have jetsoned much learned from changes in meaning, organic and contextual usage, and diachronic study as evaluated over the previous centuries. For the sake of time, I'll only briefly note generative semantics, which is a branch of generative grammar that was developed by Chomsky. Um, we can kind of see some of these things. It's based on logical rules that generate meaning. It's a structuralist method of analysis with a formalist system of description and a mentalist conception of meaning. There's all sorts of things going on here. And frankly, as Dr. Porter mentioned yesterday, very little has been done to impact biblical studies from a generative perspective. But when we turn to functional linguistics, we can see a central concern with the function of language. That is, what language does and how it does it in a given context. This approach contrasts with more formal approaches that are primarily concerned with structure. Functional linguistics is focused on deriving grammatical, syntactical, and textual structures from the way in which language is used. It's functioned. Many functional linguistics trace the work to either or both the British linguist C.R. Firth and the early 20th century Prague School of Linguistics, which uh, Dr. Porter described yesterday. On the one hand, the structuralist emphasis on language as a system can be seen clearly in approaches like systemic functional linguistics, SFL. On the other hand, there is an interesting return to the contextualizing impulse of the philologist, just a little bit, which will be maximalized in cognitive linguistics, as we'll see in the next section. So, for example, as Clark states, natural allies of cognitive linguistics are functionalists and contextualists of all persuasions from the Prague School onward. Functional grammarians such as Simon Deke, systemic functional grammarians such as Halliday, and functional typologist theorists such as Givon. Thus, a number of functional approaches should be noted, including functional grammar, systemic functional linguistics, and role in reference grammar. Functional grammar is interested in both specifying the rules used to construct linguistic utterances, such as semantic, syntactic, morphological, and phonological rules, but also in determining the rules which govern the pattern of verbal interaction. Systemic functional linguistics, likewise, has a dual goal of developing both a theory about language and social process and an analytical methodology which per permits the detailed and systemic description of language patterns. Role in reference grammar grew out of an attempt to answer two basic questions. Number one, what would linguistic theory look like if it were based on the analysis of language with diverse structures, such as Lakota and Tagalog, 
rather than on the analysis of a single language structure such as English? And number two, how can the interaction of syntax, semantics, and pragmatics as different grammatical systems best be explained? From this, we can gather that typological concerns play a much more important role in role and reference grammar than the other functionalist approaches. Three key concepts emerged from functionalism, including markedness, topic and comment, and linguistic typology and language universals. As you might expect, given the cross-linguistic interest, functional linguistics has had a strong impact within the field of, biblical, of Bible translation, such as SIL in the Graduate School of Linguistics. Here we can see in uh, Biblical Linguistics, uh, Vandermeer's article entitled Some Recent Trends in Biblical Hebrew Linguistics. In Greek, we can see the massive influence in semantics by such giants as the South African Johannes Lowe. Stan Porter's work operates from within this school, while Steve Runge's discourse features, uh, discourse grammar, and more seminally, Stephen Levinson's discourse features of the New Testament have significantly increased broad exposure to functionalism in recent years. Personally, I see my own work as functioning broadly within this functionalist framework. Across the functional schools, we find an increased interest in language choice, and therefore the contextual factors that lead to choice. And so little by little, we find a movement back from decontextualization within this, the, the structuralist and back toward contextualization. This is paralleled by a strong current emphasis within this secular linguistic communities on cognitive linguistics, a sort of maximalization of this contextualizing impulse. Cognitive linguistics or cognitive semantics emerged in the 1980s as an explicitly maximalist attempt to integrate rather than separate meaning and cognition. And similarly, to integrate rather than separate semantics, or what other schools of thought might describe as the meaning of words and their meaning within a sentence, and pragmatics, what other schools might describe as the meaning of words within context in actual situations. Cognitive linguistics would doubt whether such a distinction is even possible. As we can perhaps anticipate, cognitive linguistics sits on the opposite spectrum of structuralism in that it denies whether meaning is even accessible in a, pure, a purely structural form outside of an inherent context. In other words, is it even possible to differentiate between semantics and pragmatics? That even a legitimate way of thinking? Through the introduction of new models of description and analysis like prototype theory, frame semantics, and conceptual metaphor theory, it has proven this cognitive linguistics and cognitive semantics has proved to be a highly productive approach with a wide appeal among lexical semanticists. The shared perspective of cognitive linguistics, regardless of their particular interest, revolves around a basic principle and four tenets. The basic principle is that language is entirely about meaning in use rather than in form. Understandably, then, semantics has been the focus of much of the research of cognitive linguists, though there has been some recent work done on cognitive grammar as well. The four basic tenets of cognitive linguistics are that, number one, meaning is perspectival, and that language embodies these different perspectives. Number two, that meaning is dynamic and flexible. Three, that meaning is encyclopedic and non-autonomous, which means that it's neither a separate structure, so de Saussure, nor is it an independent component in the mind, so Chomsky. Rather, meaning entails our knowledge of the world and reflects what we experience. And finally, four, that meaning is based on use and experience, not abstract structures. Thus, grammatical patterns and structures, while perhaps useful in theory, are always part of actual utterances and actual conversations. I think here of the Greek word agapao. Not a word. So, um, sorry. Um, slide 
<clears throat> so cognitive linguistics and historical philological semantics. Tracing the history of semantics, Gerritz posits that cognitive semantics both reacts against the restrictive and autonomous aspects of generative semantics, but at the same time links up with, and get this, this is Gerard speaking, the pre-structuralist historical phil philological semantics due to its interest in psychology, context, and mental process. Though this link is considerably, if not entirely, obscured by the unfamiliarity and inaccessibility of the historic philological tradition to secular linguists, there is in fact a remarkable correspondence between the basic positions of philology and cognitive semantics. Cognitive semantics and traditional historic semantics share by and large a psychological conception of meaning. Both approaches hold that lexical meaning is inextricably bound up with the individual cultural, social, and historical experience of the language user. Third, both are specifically interested in the flexibility and polysemy of meanings and the me mechanisms that underline these phenomena. This correspondence on the essentials of meaning between comparative philology is further corroborated by striking similarities between the older philological literature and newer cognitive studies. Erdman's descriptions of the vagueness of word boundaries reads an awful lot like an early statement on cognitive prototype effects. Paul's usage-based model of semantic change fits seamlessly in contemporary views on the dialectic relationship between semantics and pragmatics, and the regular patterns of metaphor and metonym investigated in cognitive semantics can sometimes be found almost literally forecasted in the older philological literature. In the light of this more or less cyclical process in which cognitive semantics seems to return to some of the basic concerns and the fundamental conceptions of the historical philological semantics, we may recognize a number of tensions and oppositions throughout this history, starting with the structuralists. A tension between usage and structure, between so-called pragmatics and semantics, between context and system, and between flexibility and permanence. If Gerhardt's historical interpretation is correct, the overall history of lexical semantics can be written as a cyclical process of decontextualization and then recontextualization, a pattern that to some extent also characterizes the migratory history of our own linguistic schools. So contextualization and, de and recontextualization, a linguistic legacy in our own biblical ling linguistics. The, linguist the linguists and lexicographers of the historical philologist, both secular and biblical, recognized an important fact about the nature of language that was lost or ignored during much of the 20th century, namely that the linguistic phenomena under study were seen as revealing characteristics of the human mind and its shared experiences. Scholars of biblical languages picked up on the significance of this relationship between a word and a larger cultural, social, and psychological association with that word. Linguists at the turn of the 19th century viewed such contextualized associative meaning as highly valuable for developing an understanding of language, semantic change in language, and the human mind. They sought to bring together and articulate the social, cultural, and theological information that is associated with individual lexemes. They recognized that words are not self-contained phonetic vessels, but complex mental representations of human knowledge. This is not to say that James Barr was wrong when he wrote his heavy critique of theological lexicography in general, or of the theological dictionary of the New Testament in particular. Barr's semantics of biblical language was a criticism of theologians doing poor, 
undisciplined linguistics. There was certainly an accurate criticism, as there were a number of significant linguistic failures here. For one, the theological dictionaries, such as Kittle, went well beyond the documentation of sociocultural assumption implicit in biblical Greek lexemes into making significant theological claims about these particular lexemes, encouraged the lexical fallacy of illegitimate total transfer, making the assumption that all the associated meanings that might be evoked by a particular lexeme are always and forever evoked whenever that lexeme occurs. At the same time, Barr's criticisms also reflect the structuralist migration of the 1930s and 40s and 50s, which were fundamentally at odds with the contextualizing perspective on language that existed in the 19th and early 20th centuries. It's important to recognize both, that they are both, he's both impacted by the shifts in linguistic, of his linguistic uh, camp and also spurred on by some of these pretty significant failures. However, if the failure of theological dictionaries was the assumption that words and concepts are identical, then the failure of the structural semantics was the assumption that words and concepts are dramatically different. And so I'll cite Mike Aubrey here, that if words mean anything at all, then there must be a substantive relationship between them and the concepts they psychologically evoke. Fundamentally, we can view the approach put forward by structuralist grammarians and linguists such as Barr and his disciples as a reaction against the excesses of the philological tradition, but I fear that with the migration towards structuralism, much has been lost. I myself, while primarily a functionalist, have been increasingly drawn into the explanatory power and contextualizing flexibility of cognitive linguistics. Perhaps this is due to the improvements cognitive linguistics make to the encyclopedic contextualizing interest of my old, though indeed long dead, philological friends but I believe it goes beyond this. Cognitive linguistics provide a framework for engaging across cultures and languages, even as I engage with the Greek and Hebrew texts and my own cross-cultural responsibilities. This approach to linguistics needs to be given greater exposure, I believe. In recent surveys of linguistics and biblical studies, there was given no mention, for example, in, in, in Kahn's book on recent advances, or in the 2008 article by Porter and Pitts. And this is a significant oversight, given the broader impact of cognitive studies. I was very grateful to see the extensive engagement in, in Dr. Porter's paper earlier in this conference on the category, though I would argue that it's actually a viable linguistic school, not just a way of thinking. So spanning the canyon of linguistics, biblical studies, and Bible translation. In light of the preceding historical and theoretical discussion, we were in a better place to understand the historical migrations and resulting tribalism that emerged between linguistics, biblical studies, and Bible translation. What seems to have happened in these past 50 years or so is threefold. First, the Biblical and Theological Studies Guild took seriously the concerns of Barr and generally adopted his structuralist recommendations. For the majority of biblical scholars, however, the linguistic engagement then calcified Shallow readings of Saussurian structuralism became more a cautionary note for linguistic analysis than a productive one. Number two, productive use of linguistic theory within biblical studies has been limited, often highly cliquish, and in North America at least has been frequently isolated to Porter's quasi-monopoly within his particular systemic functional linguistic schule, a tribe which has self-authenticated and self-replicated and unfortunately given its restricted DNA pool, resulted in certain idiosyncrasies. Nevertheless, much of what we have today is due to Porter's dogged work, and if we're to criticize the results, then we must be willing to do 
productive work of our own. Third, the Bible translation community by its very ontology, typological, functional, and cross-linguistic, continued to engage deeply with linguistic research, though oftentimes abandoning the biblical and theological studies guild to its own devices. While perhaps understandable, given the static nature that biblical studies, of that biblical studies conversation, this resulted in strong detrimental effects for Bible translation, frequently disconnected from historical and theological developments in the study of the biblical text, and frequently disconnected even from the study of Greek and Hebrew, to our shame, given the focus on modern language typology. The drifting of the biblical studies and Bible translation cousins is close to resulting in mutually unintelligible dialects. In this matter, we stand as children of a divorce, watching our parents live separate lives, and this is to be mourned as one of the most tragic results of this history. In the meanwhile, sorry, I get emotional about this. Because the impact for our global church is unimaginable with hundreds of languages produced with, without access to our theological conversations. And this is a tragedy. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the meanwhile... The broader linguistic conversations, the secular linguistic conversations have moved on. And because most in the New Testament field are either uninterested and unaware of the conversations or simply firmly entrenched in their own positions, we have been left behind. Righteousness and peace have kissed, pursuing linguistic reconciliation. This brings me great joy, this room, actually. Great joy indeed. Um, for despite this history, there are signs of a reconciliation with a willingness for certain scholars within the Bible translation community to take steps to re-engage the Biblical Studies Guild. Especially Stephen Levinson, I think here at Randall Booth, and a significant injection of new blood at SIL and Wycliffe but also a growing awareness and interest in the diversity of thought and need for engagement with linguistics to provide answers to impasses on such topics as verbal aspects, semantics, information, structure, word order, and dependency. It's crazy that we can get emotional about that long list of technical things, but it, it has a real impact in our world. There has been a growing reassessment of our linguistic starting points, especially with the influx of scholars from the developing world asking questions of how we engage with languages in general, including one's own mother tongue, an ancient language, and other languages of broader communication. I've had the privilege of coming in and, and teaching people in Brazil, which is now a net sender of missionaries into Bible translation. Are we giving them the tools to adopt and work from Portuguese, from Spanish, from French, these broader languages into Bible translation? If we are called to communicate to all the world, that is, to all human communities, are we prepared to communicate the gospel message in a meaningful, linguistically accurate, 
historically and theologically informed manner. Language and specifically the linguistic analysis of the biblical text for all languages and for all peoples is critically important and central to the very heart of the Christian mission in our understanding of these ancient texts and how we communicate to the global community. Unfortunately, I fear that we are still far behind in the need to reevaluate our tools, reflecting an updated understanding of both target and receptor languages and how we engage with these texts. Biblical studies and linguistics must reunite, must recommit their vows to serve this unified mission. And so, a few practical contributions of linguistics to biblical studies. How are we doing on time? Do we have five more minutes? Yeah. Having charted, however briefly, the historical landscape of semantic studies, hopefully we have gained some greater clarity on the migratory influences that continue to govern our work and have created many of these perceived tribal identities. I would like to close by highlighting key practical contributions that this history of linguistics can provide, noting especially recent work on uh, prototype theory from cognitive linguistics, as well as discourse grammar and cross-linguistic and typological analysis. First, prototype theory. In prototype theory, a prototype serves as a point of reference or even a core meaning for a category and enables people to navigate the category's not-so-clear instances with relative ease. Prototype theory has four basic concepts about mental categories. First, every mental category is an exemplar that depicts the category's relevant features. For example, a robin becomes kind of a prototypical category for a bird. Second, there are good and bad, or better yet, marginal members for each category. Robin and emu, or penguin, probably don't immediately default to a prototype of a penguin when we think birds, although maybe if you live in the Arctic you do, um, which is context and yes. Uh, Third, every category has features that are important but not necessarily essential. Birds fly. We know that some don't. Finally, the boundaries of a category are, are blurry, so something may actually be a member of more than one category at a time. For example, an 18-year-old can be considered an adult and a youth or a teen. Prototypes encourage natural usage-based categories that allow for non-prototypical uses as well as for fuzzy boundaries between these categories. This holds true for both semantics and also grammar. We can even see this in the Stoic categorization of the Greek verbal system. For example, they formally regarded and categorized the aorist indicative form as a past perfective, while assuredly aware that it could be pragmatically used in non-past contexts. Here we see a form grammaticalized for past tense, understood prototypically as a past perfective, but with non-prototypical uses for pragmatic effect. Rather than trying to create a single grammatical structure that accounts for every possible meaning of of this structure, prototype theory provides a framework for integrating functional pragmatics and their wide-ranging and dynamic results of use. Second, discourse grammar. Uh, We've all witnessed the impact within our field of discourse grammar, I think. Uh, Steve Runge's book on discourse grammar brought this approach to the fore of the New Testament camp's popular imagination, though, of course, Steve was building from his predecessors, such as Levinson and others. Discourse grammar provides the critical tools to discuss such features features as markedness, constituent order, information structure, and word order, and other fields that, frankly, were entirely out of my reach, at least, during my school years. Most textbooks continue to approach Greek exegesis by having students evaluate the function and meaning of words and grammatical elements one at a time in linear order. 
This is essentially how grammar is laid out, for example, in Wallace's Greek grammar, Beyond the Basics, itself building from Blasterburn and Funk's earlier work. Each word is evaluated on its own. All semantic functions of, for example, the dative case are viewed as potential options and indeed become categorized in an attempt at encyclopedic accounting of all possible usage. Depending on which Greek grammar is consulted, that list of options could be extremely daunting and in indeed increasingly seems to me, it seems to be an exercise in folly. There is no ontological manner of categorizing all range of meaning as meaning is based on use and is dynamic, is constantly evolving. What Wallace calls a syntax is really a dive into semantic meaning. I'm increasingly convinced that trying to attach seemingly, at least for the student, ontological categories to polysemous, contextually derived meaning is not a helpful way forward. Conversely, within a discourse grammar approach, the focus is upon the clause as a whole. Focusing on how verbs engage with noun phrases, prepositional phrases, and subordinate clauses constrains the interpretation from the start. An awareness of contextualized meaning then naturally leads to the study of larger chunks of text, discourse, which have improved our understanding of the nature of grammar and language above the sentence level. And finally, uh, constituent order and information structure, which I think Steve did a great job of showing some of those uses. Um, when we begin to ask questions of information structure and how a language communicates meaning, we're forced to reckon with variations between ancient languages and our own language of analysis. Let me put this as bluntly as I can. Unless we understand language typology and cross-linguistic frameworks, we are making our work unusable for an increasingly global church who are maturing and developing into serious centers of study. From my perspective, there may be no more urgent area of linguistic analysis and integration within the Biblical Studies Guild. Due to James Barr's structuralist legacy, there remains an, an odor of general skepticism toward the idea of using other languages typologically to understand how they and we communicate meaning. This is the perspective of a guild that still operates under the linguistic assumptions that were in place at the turn of the century. While there are no two languages that are exactly the same, whether in their lexicon, their morphology, or their syntax, this does not mean that there are no limits to language variation. I'll skip the rest of my uh, hobby horse that I'm about to jump onto and just say, let's re-engage in cross-linguistics. Um, conclusions. Given Dr. Porter's summary of linguistic schools earlier in this conference, what we've seen here, specifically in lexical semantics, um, and what we've seen here, Porter and I conclude in agreement that we should not simply, we cannot simply operate blindly to our schools of influence. However, neither should we presume, presume that our field should be governed by an ongoing structuralist legacy. In keeping with the best of these scholars who have come before us, we must continue to adapt and engage with the linguistic conversation. If we are truly to follow in the legacy of Barr, it must be in his own willingness to engage in new thinking in linguistics, rather than adhering to the conclusions of a previous school. We now have additional tools within our reach, tools capable of helping us engage in a manner that are sensitive to topics dear to our exegetical hearts, contextualization, the organic, community-attuned manner of communication. My desire this afternoon, as I leave you, is that scholars can re-engage with the idea that language is not merely a system or a structure. Language is organic, it is biological, it is use, it is embodied, in that language describes experiential access to knowledge. It is cognitive, in that language is not merely an arbitrary sign, but rather is grounded in cognition 
and embodied experience. It is perspectival in that language expresses the context, history, and culture of real people, and specifically their shared human experience. It is encyclopedic, meaning that it encompasses semantics, the lexicon, and syntax as unified functional structures of meaning. And finally, because language is use, language changes constantly, unpredictably, and outside the control of those who would seek to constrain it or contain it through formal structure. Accordingly, I believe that the path of reunification between biblical exegesis and linguistics, therefore, lies in a linguistic recontextualization of our study of this text. And so for me, a scholar working in a primarily cross-cultural, cross-linguistic community, I take this unapologetically to demand a reconnecting with contextualization, a typologically aware and cross-linguistic understanding of the ancient languages, my own language, and the wider languages of communication. Indeed, is this not the very essence of biblical exegesis in fulfilling our Great Commission mandate? Thank you very much.